Typically we would have someone come up and read the scripture text, but today we are just saturating the entire service in verses from the book of Romans. I'm just so thankful for the how thoughtful Sam is to put texts from our sermon text in the, in throughout the service, inspiring every single song in order to remind you that even the music is meant to preach to you and to lift your hearts towards Jesus. So there's going to be a lot of sermon or a lot of text reading throughout the sermon. I'll be referencing tons of Romans. So I'll just pray and we'll dive right in and enjoy the depths. Oh, the riches and the depths, all this marvelous stuff that God has in this beautiful text. So let's pray. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge and the glory of our God. And we get to come into your presence, Father, as we gather. The most significant thing on planet Earth is happening right here among us. Worshiping the crucified and risen king of our souls, the king of the universe, the one who created it all, gathers with us that we may delight in him. The only thing better would be to put off the shackles of this sinful flesh and take on resurrected flesh and be in your presence forever. We long with the saints who have already gone before us. We miss the saints who are gone today, our brothers and sisters who are not feeling well or who are at work or who are traveling for the holiday week. God, we long to be in their presence again that we could share this glorious moment of worship with our King. Would you reveal yourself to us now through this beautiful text? Through these words inspired by the Apostle Paul, to the Apostle Paul, to us, that we could delight forevermore in your risen Son. Amen. Last week I wasn't here with all of you. I miss worshiping with you, but I did have the great privilege of taking a few of you with me to Washington, D.C., it's a pretty cool city. We were there for some church planting training, how to, what is a church and training up guys to lead churches. And we spent the vast majority of four days there just sitting, soaking in lessons and talking with other pastors, how to grow in our ministry leadership. But one of those days, we got to take the whole afternoon off and go explore the National Mall. Like the heart of the city where all of that cool stuff, all the monuments and museums stand and they are deceptively enormous. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it's an incredible feat of architecture and urban planning and design. You, The entire city, the, set, the heart of the city is laid out in this big rectangle. On one end of the rectangle is the Lincoln Memorial. Way on the other end is the Capitol building. Along the whole sides of the rectangle are just tons of museums celebrating the accomplishments of American history and all the cultures that have come here to make us who we are. 
And right in the middle is the Washington Monument on this big hill and a, just a spear going right up into the sky, pointing everyone to higher ideals. All of this is supposed to be leading us towards greater humanity. The whole place is just gigantic. But you don't really realize it when you first glance at it. You kind of come up the road and see the Washington Monument and you think, well, that's kind of a cute little toothpick sticking out of the ground. And I'm going to go visit that thing. And you keep walking and you keep walking and you're getting closer, but it takes forever. And you finally get there and you look up and the thing is just this massive stone structure pointing your eyes heavenward. And then you walk over and see the Lincoln Memorial and old Abe sitting up in his big chair and you turn around and look across the mall and there on the opposite side is the Capitol building and they think, oh, that's pretty cool. Looks like it's just a few blocks away. I'm going to walk over there. And you start walking. And 30 minutes later, you make it all the way down the street to see that thing. It's deceptively enormous. Along your walk, you think, maybe I'll walk into one of these museums. They're nothing really impressive on the outside. So I'll check out what's on the inside. And as soon as you step in the door, you're immersed into a whole different world transported into all kinds of worlds and history where that consume your entire day. You could spend weeks digging into all of these things. It's impressive even just to look at at a glance, but it's even more impressive the further you dig in and see all that there is there to fascinate your mind. Well, our book of the day as we go through this series of the Bible, we are stopping for one day on the book of Romans, which presents a very similar way of looking at the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 tells us, the righteous shall live by faith, giving us the introduction to what this is all about. Salvation is really simple, Paul starts off with. Jesus saves sinners. A child can understand that. It's not difficult. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the son of God, the perfect man, lived the life that you were called to live but could not. He died the atoning, propitiating death that you deserve for your sins. And he rose from the dead to give you his spirit so you could finally walk in newness of life. That is spectacular news in that simplicity. And as you stand on the shores of that great promise in Christ, you marvel at how beautiful it is. And it draws you in deeper. What looks like this really beautiful, small, restful pond that you approach in the middle of the woods turns into a deep, massive, unfathomable ocean of life-giving water. Paul wants us to see that this salvation is all-encompassing, universally transforming. And so our main idea from the book of Romans is that God is completely transforming humanity by simple faith in Christ. And now I'm a little stuck with what to do in this message because I'm telling you that I have 30 minutes to tell you all these grand things that can never fit in a 30-minute box. 
Romans is just this invitation to dive into the gospel so much more than for an hour on Sunday morning. God's promises to us in Christ are bigger than our tiny limited perspectives. If you ever read the book, The Last Battle, the last, the final book in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, there's this little stable. It looks unimpressive, but as soon as they walk into that stable, they open the door and walk in. There's this vast panoramic vista that's calling them further up and further in. That's what the book of Romans is calling us to come, come further into your salvation. So my goal this morning isn't to touch on every single magnificent thing that the book of Romans says. Oh, I wish we had the time. John Piper preached like 10 years through the book of Romans. We are not going to start that. But I just want to give you a general map that can guide you through further exploration on your own or in your community groups of this great, beautiful gospel. So the first four chapters of the book of Romans are laying the foundation of this salvation, telling us the agency of righteousness, the means of righteousness. How do you become righteous, receive God's righteousness? And then once you receive that righteousness, chapters five through eight are exploring the hope of righteousness, really just expanding your mind about what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. And then from there, a question rises in Paul, in the minds of Paul's readers. Who exactly are the people of righteousness? He answers those questions in chapters 9 through 11, explaining God's purpose in calling Israel from history past up to the present and into the future. And finally, Paul exhorts the mission of righteousness in chapters 12 to 16, describing what your life should look like. When you have this righteousness in you. So let's begin our journey through this monumental theological beauty. By starting in Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. And we're going to go page by page by page through this thing. So have your Bibles ready. Romans 1 verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians. Both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In these opening chapters of this beautiful book, Paul is setting up what the whole thing is going to be all about. This is what he does when he writes to someone. He starts with a greeting and a prayer. And in that, he's telling you, this is my focus. And we're in this transition in our Through the Bible sermon series. We've gone all the way through the Old Testament. Took forever. It was a heavy burden to bear, but it was delightful to lead us to Christ where we got to the gospels and we get to see all about Jesus. And last week we finally made it to Acts. Jesus hands off authority to his disciples to go and spread this good news throughout all the earth. You see in Acts, Paul is going city to city, planting churches, telling them Jesus dies for sinners. And then you realize that all these churches are kind of in an infant stage. They basically know that Jesus saves sinners, 
this beautiful, simple gospel. But then the question is, now what? What do we do with our lives? Here we are all sitting here. What do we do? So Paul's writing these letters, the epistles. That's an old word for letters that theologians like to use to sound important. Epistles, he writes to them in order to say, here's what life in Christ looks like. And usually he writes to these churches, all these letters are written because something isn't quite right among the church. And he starts with that problem, applies the gospel to it to show them how big life in the gospel must be. And so the unique problem here in the book of Romans is that Jews and Gentiles aren't getting along. They were fighting over who's more important. What does this life look like in Christ? Should it, should we follow Jewish laws or did we throw all of that away and we just get to be free to be Gentiles who don't even know anything about the Old Testament scriptures? Typically, when Paul starts a church, he goes first to the synagogue, to the Jew first. He shares the gospel with them. A few of them come to know Christ. Many reject Jesus. And so they can't stay in the synagogue anymore. The few that accepted Jesus now come out and they start their own gathering called the church. And then they go and share the gospel with their Gentile neighbors. And now you got a church with Jewish background believers and whatever else there is. But they're all believing in Jesus. Well, complicating the problem even more is that in Rome, as soon as the two came together, the Jewish Christians started arguing, fighting, rioting with the non-Christian Jews. It got so bad that the Roman emperor, the Caesar, said, no Jews are allowed in Rome anymore. Get out of here. He kicked all the Jews out, whether you're Christian or not. So they all had to leave, and now the Gentile Christians are hanging out all by themselves, no scripture, not knowing what to do. So they said, well, let's figure this out. And they grew. They shared the gospel of salvation, and they kept growing without any idea that this was a Jewish faith. And then the Jews are allowed back in a few years later. They show up. Hey, guys, we're back. Wonderful news. We could be unified again. Oh, what are you, what are you doing? You can't eat that. You can't, you gotta worship on this day, not that day. And they're fighting over the right way to do all of these things. And so Paul is writing to explain to them, no guys, guys, you don't realize the gospel is so much bigger than just being saved to live a Jewish life. These first four chapters, Paul is explaining, you know what? These laws that you keep bringing up, they don't make anyone righteous. No one can keep the law without Christ. And chapter 1 explains that the whole world has fallen into sin. People were made to worship the Creator. Instead, they've rejected that and exchanged worship for the creation itself. The Jews think that they look at this and they go, yeah, we're with you, Paul. That's what those nations do. They're all terrible sinners, aren't they? And he explains in chapters 2 and 3, hold on, hold on a second. It's not them. We read this together in chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, Jew and Gentile alike, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He even takes a promise from Jeremiah 31, a beautiful new covenant promise, that one day God is going to write His law on His people's heart. And He says, 
Look at the Gentiles. They have the law written on their heart. They're obeying better than most of you Jews are. Look at that. Something incredible is happening here. Well, the Jews push back. Hold on a second, Paul. We have Abraham. We were born from Abraham. And so we're automatically righteous. Paul explains in chapter 4, as we read together with Sam, that even Abraham was all about faith. Abraham wasn't a guy who was out living his righteous life, just keeping good rules, and God went, that's a guy that I can work with. I'm going to save him and make a great nation out of him. No, the guy was a pagan idol worshiper. God reached down and said, you, the worst of them all, I'm going to make you into a righteous nation and bless all other nations. And it says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. He just believed the promises. And in that, God made him righteous. Being a believer has always, from Genesis on, always been about faith. Trusting God's promises. And so here's the promise of the gospel that Paul gives us here in these first four chapters. The law only reveals your sin, your unrighteousness. It only shows you that you are not right with God. This proper relationship between you and God has been severed. But Jesus came from God himself to live a perfect life on your behalf. To die in your place on the cross. And to rise from the dead so that you could walk in righteousness with him. The only response to receive that righteousness is faith. It just means believe, trust. Not just a casual acknowledgement. Yeah, I believe God. I, I believe he exists. Yeah, I think Jesus is a nice guy who saves people. He's merciful, does forgiving things. No, belief, faith, trust is casting your hope, your identity, everything you are about on to Christ Saying, I know I am a condemned sinner. I deserve nothing. And when I stand before God on the final day, the only reason he lets me stay in his presence is because when he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Not anything I did, but everything that he did for me. This is the foundation of the gospel. That restores righteousness. That right relationship with God. This is the ground for the rest of the book of Romans. In everything else that we're going to explore. It's vital to understand. Because following Jesus, Paul is about to say, is not easy. It will not make your life easier. But for many Christians, it will really become much more difficult. So in the next few chapters, he explains the hope of righteousness, the guarantee that you will persevere to the end. Turn ahead now to chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. He's talking about Adam. Adam's sin caused the curse on all of us. Much more. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Just an amazing promise here that looks rather simple, but opens us up 
to a vast panorama inviting us further in. The introduction to this is, is setting us up for grand cosmic remaking of the whole universe. Paul begins this section just before these verses explaining that this righteousness that Christ has given us to, to us who believe has really made peace with God between us, between other believers, but not with the rest of the world. This is really confusing because the Jewish people had heard these promises of blessings in the book of Deuteronomy that if they were righteous, God would give them abundant blessings. Life would be better. Paul wants them to see in these coming chapters. Yes, those are true. I am giving you those things in Christ, but not in the way that you think. It's actually a much bigger reality than just having a better life today. God wants to bring you those blessings, but they will come out of a cursed world. God is bringing forward a brand new creation, a brand new humanity that's going to live in peace with him forever. But he says in chapter 5 that this new creation comes through suffering. The death, suffering is the death of all of our fleshly pride, all of the old things that are part of this cursed world. It's going away. But it's, it's the birth pains of everything that's pushing to bring forth brand new life. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all are made alive. If you are in Christ while you suffer, you are being made into a brand new humanity to live forever with Christ. And Paul is giving all kinds of encouragement to endure that hardship. He promises God promises to help us face, face this suffering with hope, to pick us up when we stumble and fall, to give us comfort as his beloved children, and to carry us along until we receive that eternal blessing. In chapter 6, he begins with the picture of baptism. We get to see that picture in action in just a couple of weeks. Baptism is a picture of someone dying, being buried, the waters of judgment crushing over them and killing their old self. Dying with Christ, being buried in the tomb. But then someone pulls him up, just like the Spirit of God came into the tomb and pulled Christ out. Someone pulls you up out of the water, a brand new creation, a newborn babe. Just like Genesis 1. When the waters parted and new life came out of the water. When you trust in Christ, you're no longer part of the old creation. You're no longer a slave to sin. That's been dead, killed, buried. And in his resurrection, you rise as a new person. Now in chapter 7, he admits, it's not like this automatic, this is all gone and now this is all brand new. How many of you have felt like, I'm so sick of sinning. I'm so sick of anxiety. I'm so sick of falling into temptation. I just want to be done. Well, you have some company in chapter 7. Paul says, yes, we will struggle. Our hearts have been made new. Our spirits have been revived. Yes, but we still have these bodies of flesh that are so used to sinning, so comfortable, just falling back in its old habits. There will always, until we die and this flesh becomes part of the dirt 
and we get a new, brand new body, we will always struggle between our fleshly habits and our heart's new desires to live righteously. So he ends the chapter. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to be done sinning. Praise be to God. Thanks be to God for Lord Jesus Christ. And he launches then into chapter 8. Some say the, the best chapter in all of the Bible. Chapter 8, all these amazing promises in Christ. We have everything we need to endure. He's given us the spirit to help pick us back up. He's given us his spirit to bring us right into the presence of the Father, the comforting arms of the Father. And his spirit will keep on fighting with us until we finally overcome. We are more than conquerors in Christ. He will carry us from our calling to our, through our perseverance, to our glorification. The promise here of the gospel is that Christ has guaranteed you will rise to a new creation. The journey will be difficult. Some will die. Some will be sick. You will experience persecution, weakness, failure. But Christ's death and resurrection has purchased his spirit to live in you and sustain you until glory. Victory is yours. Walk in that victory. I would just like to stop there for the next few days. Such incredible promises to the Roman church and to us. But they now have one lingering question. The Jewish people are thinking, this is all great and wonderful, but what happened to all those promises to Israel? It seems like you're just setting those aside and starting something brand new. So Paul turns his attention in chapters 9 to 11 to the people of righteousness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 22. We'll summarize what these chapters are about here. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now remember that this church is struggling with its identity. Are we Jewish? Are we Gentile? Are we Christian? Are we in a whole new thing? How does this fit? The Jews always had a concept of when the Messiah came, Israel became great again, that a few Gentiles would probably join them. But they didn't imagine it would be the other way around. So what's going on here, Paul? Paul now is encouraging them. You got to think bigger. Yes, you're looking at those promises from a distance. you got to come closer. Come further up and further in. And see how those promises were always much bigger for the whole world. God's plan wasn't simply to save one little people group in one corner of the earth and invite a few others to participate in it. He always wanted to fill the earth with his glory, with redeemed image bearers. Yes, he was going to accomplish that through the people of Israel... But oftentimes, sadly, as he says here, 
using them as vessels of destruction. Showing them, showing the world through their example how utterly depraved humanity is. Israel would be an example that wealth and strength and wisdom and religious rituals were not sufficient to lead people to right relationship with God. Chapter 9 emphasizes that Israel is part of the old dying creation too. Simply being born into a genealogy doesn't make you automatically righteous. Everyone, Abraham was born of Adam. That old creation must pass away. The only thing that has kept God's promises going is a small minority, a remnant of people who have remained faithful, who have trusted God's promise to remake everything. And the only reason they have held fast to those promises is because God is like a master potter taking the clay and molding it just as he pleases. He says in chapter 10 that people are just so caught up in trying to keep the law. They miss what the law was meant to do. It's meant to lead us to Christ, to point out our sin, our need for a savior, to expose our hearts so that we will just confess what he can already see. Confess your sins and trust in his righteousness alone. So he says in chapter 10, verse 9, here's the promise for everyone, Jew and Gentile. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the creator, the king of everything, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel for everybody. And with that point, now Paul starts to shift his emphasis towards the future of Israel. What's going to happen with Israel? If you want them to be saved, then receive the gospel. If you want them to receive the promises given to Israel, then they need to receive the Messiah given to Israel. They need to see that their Jewish rituals and their feasts and their laws were meant to lead them to Christ. Keeping the law to be righteous is not the message of the gospel. Jesus keeping the law for you is the message. They just weren't thinking big enough. Yes, the promises were given to them. But like Abraham, they were given them to them in order to be a blessing to everybody else. God's promises were meant to redeem the whole world. If you want your Jewish friends to come and receive these blessings, then you need to receive them and enjoy them. Share them with others and make the world hungry to participate in them with us in Christ. This is the focus then of the final section in chapters 12 to 16. Paul clarifies the mission of righteousness. How is this righteousness going to take over the whole world? His answer starts in 12, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is, again, what Sam had us read together. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just imagine 
you receive all of these grand promises. You've been accept, uh, expecting a Messiah to come vanquish all your enemies, set your people up as the most important people in all the world. You hear these promises, these guarantees in Christ through his death and resurrection, his spirit to help you sustain every trial and win every battle. You got a big mission ahead of you. And then in your flesh, you start to think that in order to accomplish that, we really need some highly organized, systematic, political revolution. We've got to take this movement, this message right to the top, to all the people with the greatest influence, to those in the government, in business, in entertainment. If we can get it to them, oh, it'll go out and overtake the world. And Paul says exactly the opposite. This message begins right here in your own mind, in your heart. And then it spreads locally right here. Ordinary people coming together to delight in Christ. Through the gospel, your life will be transformed as you offer your life up daily. Use me, God. I'm not mine anymore. I woke up to a new day that you have made. Help me be faithful. God's purpose will unfold in rather ordinary, unsuspecting ways. And right after these commands to renew your minds, he says to go and live an ordinary life in Romans 12. The whole chapter basically saying, love your church family. This is how the gospel will take root and bear fruit and multiply to fill the earth. So you see things like take care of each other, bear one another's burdens, challenge each other, outdo one another in showing honor. Open your homes, be hospitable to one another, weep together, rejoice together, be generous towards one another. And then he makes this abrupt change in chapter 13. Just before you get too excited about this revolution you're about to start, Romans 13 offers a correction. You're going to be tempted to think that because Jesus is king and he promised victory over all your enemies, that you need to infiltrate and overthrow the government. You'll think that the best way to bring righteousness to the land is to change the laws, protest, revolt, advance the kingdom with the sword. And he says, no, put your swords away. Do not be enforcers of righteousness, but models of righteousness. Show the world through your love for one another, through your commitment to do this week after week in each other's homes, that this is the type of society that Christ builds. He's not saying necessarily in Romans 13 that you should just do whatever the government says. In the context, he's saying just don't get caught up in thinking the government is the best way to fill the earth with righteousness. The best that the government can do, the only authority they have is to punish evil and allow righteous people to live freely. And oftentimes they get that backwards, which is even more important for you to remember. This is far more important than that. Your job, he comes back to in chapter 14, is to figure out how to work together. Be a church. No matter what your government is doing, what your boss is doing, 
what your community is doing. Be a model of righteousness to the world. Show the world how we overcome sin. Display to the world how the power of the gospel unites people of all different backgrounds on mission into a fruitful community. This is God's plan to save the world. He's going to fill this creation with righteousness through a church sticking together, overcoming our differences, clinging together to Christ day in and day out, week in and week out. This is our mission, he tells us in chapter 15. He wants us to unify so we can partner together to send people to the next place. Paul says, I want to go to Spain. So I'm coming to you so you can launch me to Spain. So please get over yourselves. You people in Rome are not that important. You're not the be all end all. Get over your petty differences and display the power of the gospel in your love for each other and become partners in taking what happens here and sending it to other places. Your life is not your own anymore. The gospel promise in this section here comes in chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. Somewhere in there. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. If you are in Christ, your life is made for this mission. Unifying with the church to display his righteousness here and then sending others out to display it around the world. And we do it even if it costs us our life. Because we will die and rise to an eternal kingdom. Our hope is not in medicine, in government, in persuasive words of wisdom, in career advancement, even in a nice traditional family. Our hope is in Christ and his righteousness displayed through his unified people. It's a deceptively simple but massively beautiful gospel. Its promises are simple. Its implications are cosmic. Its mission is ordinary, but its triumph is guaranteed. You know, when I was in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but walk among all those big buildings and read these big, important stories and start to stand up a little taller and think, well, I'm kind of important, too. Imagine all the influence I could have if I planted a church right here in the middle of the National Mall. We could change the world. I just need to get in the right people's ears. The longer you're there, the more important you feel. It draws you in, making you feel like you're so important because you could get involved and influence everything in this great city of global importance. Indeed, we walked in places where great marches were held. I stood at the place where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I have a dream speech. Great protests happen regularly there. We saw a group of people pleading for justice. Help us, President Biden, right in front of the White House. And it really struck me how little that was going to accomplish. We think similarly here in Rochester. We've got the Mayo Clinic, the best clinic in all the world. People, important, smart people come here to influence global health. 
And the more you immerse yourself in that, the more you believe it. And people in Rome thought the same. They were in the capital of the Roman Empire. Paul's telling us, all of us, something far greater is happening right here. You think uh, assembling at Congress will change your country. How about assembling in the throne room of God? You think petitioning the president will bring you justice. What about petitioning the creator of the universe? Paul is turning us away from trying to seek worldly change, starting worldly revolution, and focus all our attention on serving one another, worshiping our risen king. The biggest thing happening in your entire life is this, gathering with the redeemed people of God. And in this, he is creating completely a brand new humanity. Certainly the mission is global, but the depth of its beauty, the power of its influence is in the gospel message and the work of the spirit in your life and the corporate witness of love we share with one another. So let's commit our lives together to that simple gospel mission and make Jesus known in our love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful book. And I pray that this would just be the launching pad for every one of these brothers and sisters to go home and dive into the unfathomable depths of your love expressed to us in the gospel and explained to us in these beautiful words. Thank you for Jesus who died and rose for us that we could live for him. And if we must, that we would die for him. Be glorified in us all. Amen.